From Bowling Green State University and the Institute for the Study of Culture and Society, this is BG Ideas. I'm going to show you this with a wonderful experiment. Welcome to the Big Ideas Podcast, a collaboration between the Institute for the Study of Culture and Society and the School of Media and Communication at Bowling Green State University. I'm Jolie Sheffer, Associate Professor of English and American Culture Studies and the Director of ICS. Today I'm joined by Dr. Star E. Keyes, an Associate Professor at Bowling Green in the School of Counseling and Special Education. This semester she's an ICS Faculty Fellow. Dr. Keyes has done research on a wide variety of subjects relating to the education system related to learning abilities and special education, as well as research related to urban school systems and behavioral interventions. Dr. Keyes received her BA and PhD from The Ohio State University and her master's in education from the University of Toledo. Today we're discussing her new research project entitled Disability, Race, and the School to Prison Pipeline. Thanks for coming to join me today, Star. Thanks for having me. Tell me how you came to study this topic. What was your path from your previous research into this particular project? Yeah, this is, uh, I think it's a culmination of um, a lot of experience personally and professionally that got me to this point right now. Um, But before this, I was actually looking at the effects of computer-assisted reading instruction um, on students' fluency, their reading fluency. And that's really important, right, because we know students from urban areas tend to come to school behind in in skills. And so I really wanted to help them with, you know, their reading skills. But um, I started thinking about, you know, the bigger issues at play, right, and and what else is is going on in the educational system and, and, and how we can better serve students and, you know, the what's going on in the media also, you know, plays a role, but it's also something that I've just been interested in in a while or for a while. Um, and so really just looking at, you know, what contributes to this phenomenon, this school to prison pipeline and, and, you know, what can we do about it? What, what does the research look like? What does research say about it? And, um, so that's really kind of, you know, what got me started on it, just finishing up the computer-assisted reading instruction, and then, you know, after tenure, being able to go into something a little bit more, you know, um, deep, (laughs) if you will. We've been hearing a lot about the role of racism in the treatment of students, uh, leading to disproportionate numbers of minority and poor students being pushed into the criminal justice system. What role does disability play in the school-to-prison pipeline? Right, so students who... um, have disabilities are often disproportionately represented, right? So um, what we know is that race and disability are some of the biggest factors that have that make students end up in the system, the school to prison pipeline. Um, and, and some of those students who have disabilities may or may not or who have been categorized as having disabilities may or may not actually have them. So so there's a, a, a larger issue of, you know, disproportionality of these students in special education in the first place, saying they have a disability. So can you give some examples of maybe behaviors that get categorized as being part of a disability that might actually not, in fact, be about disability? Right. And so... Um, if I could take it a step back and, and talk a little bit about diversity in, in the teaching field, um, because I think that's part of what 
plays into this issue. And so in, in the teaching profession, it is majority white female, 80 plus percent. Um, but we know that the student population is very diverse. And so that sets the stage for cultural discontinuity sometimes where maybe a teacher might interpret a student's behavior as uh, a behavioral deficit because the student may not be acting in accordance to, you know, middle class white norms, um, maybe acting in accordance to their culture. So maybe more um, uh, passionate, shall I say, enthusiastic, maybe, um, when the teacher feels like they shouldn't be, maybe um, uh, drumming on the table, just things that might annoy a teacher where, you know, the student is maybe engaging in class in a different way, um, maybe interrupting to show some enthusiasm and, and they take that as, you know, the student having a behavioral problem. So sometimes it's those cultural discontinuities really that might get a student, you know, kicked out of class um, because of those differences in cultures that the teacher may not understand. So she or he may, you know, see it as a deficit when really it's just the student acting in accordance to their culture. And what happens? Why is it such a problem if certain students are given detention or suspensions um, at a higher rate? Why does how does that directly lead to um, some of these larger systemic problems? Yeah. So what we know is that when the students are excluded and and we use the term disciplinary exclusion, right, for whether it's, you know, in school, out of school suspension, whenever they are excluded from class. First of all, they're not getting the academic instruction that they definitely need, right? Um, and, and so that's a problem. And so when you exclude them, especially if it's out of school, then there is more likelihood for them to engage in other types of activities that they wouldn't engage in if they were in school. So that can kind of indirectly lead to the the pipeline, the, the prison part of this pipeline, right? Because they're getting in trouble for engaging in now um, illegal acts, outside of school when they should have been in school. Um, so that's part of the issue. Uh, I think another part of the issue, so that's what kind of uh, indirectly leads to it. They, they don't have the um, academic skills that they should be learning and then they're engaging in those other activities. But what we know is suspension is actually the biggest predictor of students dropping out and being retained. Right. So if you're being retained, you're getting further behind. You may end up acting out in class when the teacher's trying to teach. It's a vicious cycle. Um, and, and then after so long, why am I even here? Right. And so uh, a lot of what I've read and, and watched um, on, on in these documentaries, they really talk about how students feel they're being pushed out. So we talk about dropout. These students dropped out of school. But students actually feel that they're being pushed out by the schools and, and the practices and policies that are in place that don't allow them to engage um, in, in class. You talked about some of the unintended consequences of zero tolerance policies and other programs that were put in place in schools um, to make them safer. Can you explain more about um, what those policies were designed to do and how that's functioning now in ways that um, are really contributing to this problem? Mm -hmm, absolutely. So uh, the zero tolerance policies 
really came out of the Gun-Free Schools Act in about the mid-1990s. And it was supposed to increase school safety, right? And, and the main thing was weapons. Um, but what we saw was that that started, the zero tolerance started being adopted for any generalized behavior. So anything students did, we have no tolerance, zero tolerance, and we're going to suspend them. And so that's really what started, you know, this disciplinary exclusion for just minor infractions, right? These, these, uh, traditionally like, um, adolescent behaviors, you know, childhood behaviors that we expect children to do, you know, misbehave in class, um, disrespect, you know, that that's that's typical of adolescence. And those should be teachable moments. And, and, and you know, they should be able to learn from those mistakes, but instead zero tolerance. So um, we are excluding students now. We're suspending them in, instead of, you know, helping them. And so it just trickled down to all types of minor offenses. And then the punishments were like mandatory and often harsh. And Honestly, they're usually more harsh and the um, punishments are longer for students um, who are um, racially diverse and and students with disabilities. So whereas, you know, a white student might get in school suspension, a black student or a student with disabilities might get out of school suspension. So um, those zero tolerance policies really led to and, and that's kind of the indirect they when they get these suspensions, that's how it indirectly leads these students to being in the system because after so many, um, you know, they're, again, engaging those behaviors outside of school, not learning, and so it just becomes a vicious cycle. Uh, Also, as part of that uh, was the increase of police presence in schools, right? So the school resource officers, we hear a lot about that now. We see a lot about that in the news. And it was supposed to help create a safe environment like the zero tolerance policies. But instead, it did the opposite. So these policies having more police in schools, um, it actually while they thought it was going to make the schools safer and a better educational environment, that was not the case for students who are from racial back or racial racially ethnic backgrounds, students with disabilities, students who are in poverty. Um, you know, when we look at all these other demographic variables and when it starts to intersect, you know, that's when it gets, you know, even greater where these students are getting suspended. Um, but directly the school resource officers, just having them in the schools leads to more arrests, like school based arrests. Right. And so that's a problem, because if they weren't there, these minor infractions, teachers in schools would be dealing with them instead of the school resource school resource officers dealing with them and handcuffing children and taking them to jail for these minor infractions. So that's actually what directly leads to the pipeline when they are arrested in schools, you know, and and sent to jail. And it's again, often for minor issues. And I know, you know, I I think I mentioned this last night in a talk about recently in the news, we saw about like a kindergartner being handcuffed, (laughs) you know, and and sent to jail for throwing a tantrum. That is typical five-year, six-year-old behavior. Why are we sending these kids to jail? for typical behaviors. And so the the zero tolerance policies and the school resource officers and the other measures like around that time we had, you know, more um, metal detector security cameras, like all of the surveillance was supposed to, you know, make schools safer. And it, it it's actually made it worse for some students. If you could give any advice to uh, soon-to-be teachers, teachers in training who are about to be sent off into schools, um, what kinds of things would you like them to be doing differently or to be thinking about mm-hmm. as they engage with diverse populations? I think uh, even recognizing 
the diversity, because too often uh, people try to say they're colorblind. We don't see color and they don't realize that not seeing color is not a good thing. (laughs) They think that's a good thing. Um, but I used to teach in our inclusive uh, early childhood education program. I taught a cultural linguistic diversity class. And, I, and, and we talk about the, that. You can't be colorblind because you are negating a very aspect of that child. You are negating a big part of them and their experience and how their experience is, is different from yours. Right. And so I think just recognizing that we do have these differences and it's OK, like, this is diversity is great. That's what makes, you know, this world what it is. Um, and so recognizing the differences, but not just recognizing them, but um, affirming them in their students. Right. And so too often we see that when there are differences um, between the student and the teacher and their culture, they're looked at as deficits and it shouldn't be looked at as a deficit. It should be looked at as an asset. How can we use that to our advantage? How can we use that to help them access what we're teaching better? Right. Um, so I think Understanding that it's okay to see that diversity, to recognize it, but then also to affirm it, to develop your students, to nurture that development and be introspective Um, because we go through life and we really don't think about why we are the way we are, why we think the way we think, why we do the things we do. And a lot of that is culturally based. You know, we weren't born this way that was instilled in us as part of our culture. And so I, I try to help my pre-service special ed teachers understand that too. And I have them do a reflection activity and it's literally five questions. I have them uh, write their answers down in class and then whoever feels comfortable, they share. And after class, sometimes people tell me, Dr. Keys, that was one of the hardest assignments ever because they've never been really made to sit and think about their culture and how that impacts what they do how they think, how they interact with others. And I think that's really important. I think that reflection piece, um, because we need teachers to move from this punishment paradigm to more of a responsive and reflective paradigm where we're not criminalizing, you know, adolescent behaviors or differences that we see in behaviors of our students versus what maybe we saw growing up in our neighborhoods. Well, so much of what you're talking about is that Teachers tend to have been, um, they ha- they were good students, right? right and the right. reason they go into the field is because <laughs> yeah. they liked school. They understood mm-hmm. the rules of school and they knew how to succeed. Well, and they had those role models, right? Because a lot of our teachers are white female. Who are, who are the te- our pre-service teachers are white female. Who are the teachers in the field? White female. So when you have those role models, it's also more likely that you want to follow in that, right? So um, there are not a lot of diverse teachers who diverse students have to look up to. And, and so that plays into it too. So there are a couple of layers to that then. One is we, you know, um, the need for more diverse teaching Mm -hmm, staff, mm -hmm. right? And I'd love to have you talk about that. But it also seems to be in part about um, having these new teachers recognize that the students they're encountering don't have necessarily the same experience with the education system that they did. Absolutely. Yeah. They don't have the same cultural capital. Um, And also recognizing that the student's parents probably didn't have um, uh, uh, the same or a good experience. And so sometimes we're teachers, pre-service teachers or in-service teachers might think, you know, students, um, parents don't care. It's not that they don't care. A lot of them are working two and three jobs trying to make ends meet. They might not be able to get off work um, in order to come to a meeting. That does not mean they don't care. And so that's why schools need to be more flexible with the times that they offer, you know, parent-teacher conferences and things like that. Um, 
But also, I remember when I was teaching, I had um, a parent who brought her sister in with her and the parent didn't want to come to this IEP meeting. And she told me flat out, Miss Keys, I didn't have a good experience in school. So I like basically schools are, are aversive to her. You know, mm-hmm. she she didn't really want to come. And so she brought her sister for support. And she came um, in with a sort of sense of distrust right, of the right. of the instructor. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so, you know, those are things that they need to take into consideration, too, that these parents do care. And Actually, the students do, too. Um, I was just at our uh, national subdivision conference last week, and I spoke to a gentleman who was a high school teacher. And he talked to me, and and he had come to my uh, session about this topic here. And so he had explained, you know, some some things that had happened in a school with um, an African-American male in particular. And he said that the student really wanted to be engaged in school. He really wanted to learn. But the way that he was being treated and kicked out, like that really affected him. And so I think for the pre-service and in-service teachers to realize that these kids want to learn, their parents want them to learn, like, you know, we have to stop with all of the um, assumptions and stereotypes and really get to know the students and their families. And that's what somebody else at the conference actually spoke about, too, about. um, And I thought this was a good idea because I always talk to my students about getting to know your students and the families. But she said that she sends home a survey for the student to do by themselves, one for the parents to do by themselves or or whoever the student lives with, if it's not parents, and then one for all of them to do together. Because she's like, you can see differences in what students might say, what parents might say, and then what they do together. And so learning about the family, the student, the dynamics, and then bringing that information into the classroom is going to make the instruction a lot better um, for the students and and be able to connect. The teacher can connect better with the students. We're going to take a short break. Thank you. Consider the following. If you are passionate about big ideas, consider sponsoring this program. To have your name or organization mentioned here, please contact us at ics at bgsu.edu. Welcome back to the Big Ideas Podcast. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Starr Keyes about her work on the intersections of race, disability, and the school-to-prison pipeline. Starr, parents with children with disabilities have frequently had to fight hard for their children to get full educational rights. What role in your research has parent activism played in raising awareness about disproportionate numbers of minority students and and students with disabilities being pushed into the pipeline? What are some of those um, activisms that um, you've seen parents involved in? Honestly, when the research articles and books that I read, they really didn't um, talk about parents that much, honestly. And and maybe that's part of the issue, right? Um, and, and maybe I just haven't come across those articles yet because let's be honest, there is a plethora of research <laughs> regarding the school-to-prison pipeline and, and disproportionality. Um, what I can say is when I was reading about efforts that schools were taking to dismantle the pipeline, when they were successful in reducing their suspensions and um, seeing, you know, increased academic engagement, they did have more parent and family involvement in the school. So where the parents were able to volunteer or take part in uh, groups to revise their policies, their discipline policies. And so I really didn't read about necessarily activism on the part of parents or groups, but 
in schools where we saw this decrease in, you know, discipline disproportionality um, and increase in student achievement, they involve the parents in the process. And so I think that's really important is that parent and student engagement piece, especially when they're from different backgrounds than the school personnel. What are some uh, initiatives or programs um, that you've seen that seem to be really effective at reducing disproportionality? What are different school districts doing to try and tackle this? Yeah, good question. Um, So there are a few different things that um, the research has talked about. One of them is multi-tiered systems of support. Um, Some people might have heard of response to intervention or school-wide positive behavior interventions and supports. And um, really that falls under the umbrella of MTSS, multi-tiered systems of support. And what that essentially is, is when we're looking at, you know, academics and behaviors in schools. Um, It's like a tiered system where the first tier is what are we doing for the whole school um, or the whole classroom regarding academics and behavior. And so if if we implement some type of, you know, school-wide policy on behavior and what we expect and rules um, and even, you know, the type of instruction that we're providing in the classroom to all students, we should be able to reach about 80% of our students' needs. And so if we're implementing all of this effectively, you know, with fidelity like we're supposed to, we should see that student achievement is, you know, increasing, that student behaviors are, you know, pro-social. We have less disciplinary exclusion. But that's not going to work for everybody. And so here comes tier two, right? And so that's for the smaller groups of students, those students who have not responded to our academic instruction or, you know, our school-wide, you know, rules. And so at tier two, we're looking at, you know, what does this particular group of students need? What do they need regarding academics? What do they need regarding their behavior? And so, you know, if if we implement interventions there for their specific needs, whether it's reading fluency or phonics or, you know, um, um, maintaining proper pro-social behavior in the classroom, um, if we implement interventions at that level, we should be able to reach about 15% of the students. So by using this, you know, uh, foundational tier one uh, support and then tier two support, we should be able to reach the needs of about 95% of our students. And so there should really only be 5% of students or less who are still, you know, having persistent problems, who need more intensive intervention. And so that's when it's even smaller groups or even individualized Um And so, again, we're assessing them to determine their needs academically and or behaviorally, giving them what they need. And when we provide that to the students, we should be able to reach everybody by putting in these multi-tiered systems of support, you know, intensifying our interventions. And so when we intensify interventions, that means either, you know, in longer duration or more days per, per week or smaller groups or more explicit instruction. So when schools implement this practice, they've seen disciplinary um events go down uh, and and because they're achieving academically and they're getting the behavior interventions that they also need too. And then what researchers have showed is that multi-tiered systems of support in and of themselves are not enough. Um, we also need to make sure that we embed culturally responsive practices within that to make sure that we're meeting everyone's needs. And so a lot of the research that I read about it was that multi-tiered systems of support, you know, are generally effective um, when implemented properly, but you want to make sure that you embed those culturally responsive practices in there in order to reach, you know, the needs of of your more um, diverse student body population. I think one of the things that's so interesting about what you're talking about is the 
interconnections um, between academic and disciplinary um, education, and that um, when disciplinary processes are amplified, when you have more um, police in schools, when you're quicker to suspend, um, it has a direct re- correlation to reduced academic performance, Absolutely. right? Yeah. Um, but the opposite is also true that when you are addressing, when you stop disciplining students with these zero tolerance policies, not only do those students stay in school, but they actually show increased achievement. Right. And in some of the research that I read, um, they they talked about uh, like the Clayton County one that I talked about earlier and also um, Garfield High School in L.A. They saw like graduation rates, you know, increase <laughs> um, uh, in Clayton County. They actually saw better relationships with police, you know, when, when we stop focusing on the punishment and more about, you know, rehabilitation and helping students and meeting their needs. Um, and, and so, yeah, that's that's extremely important, keeping them in schools to provide them the academic instruction that they so very badly need in order to be successful in this world. Um, They cannot be gainfully employed after, you know, school, if indeed they do graduate, which a lot of them are pushed out, right? Um, But how can they be gainfully employed if they don't have the skills necessary? Um, I actually consulted with a school a few years ago, and they were implementing the computer-assisted reading instruction program that I had told you about earlier. And there was this one middle school student, I will never forget him. <laughs> um, he he did not want to engage in the program, and he was kind of acting out. And when I consulted with the school myself and my GA, we observed um, how the teachers implemented the intervention. We trained everybody on it first, of course. We trained them, um, all of the instructional assistants, all of the teachers, even the principal. He was involved in it, too. Uh, we trained all the students on how to, you know, engage with the program. And so then we did fidelity checklists and we watched them as they implemented the program because we know that if schools are using, you know, uh, scientifically validated instruction and interventions, they should by right work if they're implemented with fidelity like they're supposed to. And so we would coach them and provide them with feedback afterwards. And as I saw this one student, he, he would continuously act out in the computer lab. And the um, instructional assistant, you know, I talked to him about it and I said, do you mind if I, you know, pull him aside? And so I I pulled him outside the class or the computer lab and I asked him, you know, why he didn't want to engage with the program because these kids were in there because they needed help with reading fluency. These were middle schoolers, you know, really struggling with reading. This is stupid. You know, I don't want to do this. And I said, well, why? You know, you have to talk to the students when, when they are acting out and find out what's going on. Um, I don't want to, I don't want to listen to her read to me all these, this many times. And I was like, well, that's called modeling. And you want to hear, you know, what fluent reading sounds like. Well, it takes too long. I don't want to listen to her. And I said, well, how about we change it? How about we don't make you listen to her as many times? Well, can I listen to her once? How about twice? Okay. You know, and, and so I'm talking to him to try to make this better because I want him to be successful. I want him to learn how to read better. And then I, you know, once we, decided on how we were going to make changes to the program. Um, I talked to him about what he wanted to do with his life and basically told him, you have to be able to read in order to do that. And so I think that's what's really important. A, implementing, you know, the instruction as we're supposed to, but when it's not working for a student and they're acting out in class, finding out why, because it was that simple. I went in a few clips, clicks of the computer keys and he was fine. Um, and so I think teachers need to do a little bit more of that instead of just assuming and he's not engaged. He doesn't want to. Well, why? Find out why. We did that and he was fine. <laughs> 
We've heard a lot in terms of um, diversion programs and sort of alternatives to disciplinary action of things like restorative justice. Could you talk about what those programs look like in schools and how that functions in relationship um, to trying to disrupt um, the school to prison pipeline? Yeah, so um, restorative justice, that's actually an interesting one. Um, There are some cities who, cities and states who have implemented it, and it seems to be a little bit more difficult um, and time consuming to implement. I think it needs, um, I don't want to say more, uh, I think the, it just seems so different than what a lot of teachers are used to doing, right? Um, and, and one case that I read about, it talked about how they worked with uh, some university um, personnel like master students or doc students who were helping to run the, the circles, the peace circles. And, and they had a peace room at this school, actually. Um, and, and so I think um, restorative justice is just so different than what most people are used to because it's really about bringing the person who was harmed and the person who did the harm together, talking about it, you know, um, trying to make it better and make the whole community class or, you know, whatever the situation is, make everybody whole. But then, you know, maybe even taking it one step further and looking at, you know, like social justice and, and, and systemic issues as part of that as well. But um, I think restorative justice, they, they talk about how it has, you know, many different forms that it can take, like peace circles in the classroom, um, peer juries or peer mediation. And so I think it needs more like it's a lot more training for everybody involved. And so that's a little bit different than, you know, say, like coming up with a progressive discipline policy where, you know, um, which actually that's what schools should be moving toward instead of this zero tolerance, looking at progressive discipline policies. And so um, I think it was uh, Buffalo, New York, and I think even Denver, Colorado, they have like um, different levels, like an A through F or a one through four, right? And so it's not just you're disrespectful, you get suspended. There are steps to this discipline you know, process. And so the first step might be the teacher and the student having a conversation. And then talking about it, warnings, and then going into maybe an intervention. And then after that, bringing the parent in. And then after that, if we're still having issues, bringing someone else from the school in. And then after that, if we're still having issues, that's when we bring the principal in. And then maybe at that point, that's when we decide, you know, maybe a suspension is necessary. So um, things like restorative justice and progressive discipline policies, those are actually going to be more effective at helping students stay in the classroom you know, be in schools, helping them learn not only academically, but pro-social behavior instead of just kicking them out right away. It's a, a long process before we would suspend them. And so I think those types of policies that some schools have started to look at really do make a difference. But um, definitely the progressive discipline policy, I think, would be something that a lot of schools would want to look into because that is really a big part of the problem, going from zero tolerance to something else. Well, I think that's really interesting because part of what you're describing with that progressive system is many more opportunities to intervene, to understand a broader context, Mm -hmm. to bring in additional resources, potentially. Um, Whereas right Mm -hmm. now, we treat symptoms. We don't actually address the causes. Mm -hmm. And actually... um, 
when Congress convened their panel um, in 2012 about the school to prison pipeline, like, you know, this is a serious problem when Congress convenes a panel on it. Um, they, they talked about different recommendations about, you know, what should happen. And um, the advancement project gave some recommendations like making sure that, um, you know, maybe the federal government provides more money to schools who do these types of things, who implement evidence-based practices, who who try to, um, you know, limit out-of-school suspensions, who have these progressive discipline policies, get more money, you know, funding to schools and teachers to support them in these, in this process and, and address the root cause of the issue. So having more, you know, school-based social workers and counselors and, you know, psychologists really helping the students with, you know, their needs all around, mental health needs, you know, support that, you know, they might need uh, financially, removing those barriers and really getting at the root cause of why students are having issues in school, you know, that's going to really help with this this problem. What are you hoping to do next with this research that you're doing? Where do you want to go with this? Yeah, good question. <laughs> um, like you mentioned earlier, this is the beginning. Um, I'm just getting started. Definitely. uh, We'll be writing an article, you know, about our findings because we did look at, you know, how we're doing here in Northwest Ohio regarding disciplinary exclusion. So we definitely want to get that um, data out there. Um, But honestly, I want to be definitely still um, at the university level, making sure that we are doing more and better for our students in in regards to, you know, culturally relevant, you know, practices and instruction and talking about it more and helping them understand what's going on. Um, I bet you if I polled some students, they probably might not even know about the school to prison pipeline, right? So bringing this in, uh, this information back into my classes is going to be really important for sure. Um, there are, uh, when we talk about ways to dismantle the pipeline, um, one of the things that I've come across in research are like grow your own teacher programs. And so it's basically where um, universities, you know, work with, you know, school districts to try to pull in more diverse candidates into the teaching field and help them become teachers and go back into their communities and teach. That's going to help with this. And so um we have at our college level talked about this, um, and we are in the very, very early stages, but um, definitely trying to see where this might go. Um, and, and then outside of there, you know, who knows, maybe something with schools um, and, and looking at maybe their their data and, and if they're interested in trying to make change, whether it's helping, you know, with teacher um, professional development or, you know, reviewing their data, looking at, you know, what what types of students they typically suspend. Is, does it come from a certain teacher? You know, um, those types of things. Who knows? Uh, <laughs> I think the sky's the limit, really, because it's such a big issue. So one of the things you've been looking at is studying um the data nationally and in Ohio, and then with the potential to go even more granular district by district, school by school. Um, generally speaking, how are we doing in the region relative to the nation? Unfortunately, um, we are right in line with, um, you know, uh, the, the nation in that um, in Northwest Ohio, um, when, when we reviewed the data, we do see, unfortunately, disproportionate um, suspensions for, you know, students of color, in particular African-Americans, um, students with disabilities. Uh, it differs, of course, by um, typology when, it, when I talked earlier about, you know, rural versus suburban and urban um, and small town. But 
unfortunately, we do have some issues right here in our own backyard. Um, now, the data that we did obtain was from um, a database at the Ohio Department of Education. And so it's only district level. And so, you know, there, there might be differences by school. Right. And so some people, you know, might be doing really well in their school in, in this area. And, and some people might have more, you know, um, more issues with this. But unfortunately, our data are um, right in line with the national picture of students of color, in particular African-Americans, in particular African-American males, being suspended uh, more often um, at disproportionate rates and uh, uh, students with disabilities. Yeah. Are there any last, anything you want to talk about that we haven't yet discussed? Um, I, I don't think so. I think just um, really the importance of this issue um, it's not just about schools, right? It's it's about deeper issues, the systemic issues, I think, um, that have been around for years and, and how this uh, school-to-prison pipeline really feeds into a bigger issue that we have in America of the prison industrial complex and mass incarceration um, and, and the criminalization of African-Americans. And so this is like the school-to-prison pipeline, while it's a big issue in, in and of itself, it really feeds into a larger issue that we have in this country. And and so I think if, you know, we can work together more um, and we can all do our individual parts, right? So um, if we do what's in line with our knowledge, skills, expertise, expertise, and passion, if we can all do our own individual parts, come together, work together, you know, it's almost like a snowball effect. We can build and build and really make a difference to dismantle this pipeline because the research shows that there are ways that, you know, we can do this. It's not going to be easy. This has been around for 30, 40 years, right? It's been an issue. Disproportionality has been an issue. And then the, the school to prison pipeline, you know, earlier articles you'll read like a schoolhouse to jailhouse track and, you know, then school to prison pipeline, more recently cradle to prison because of preschool. We're, we're suspending preschoolers. Um, and, and so I think if we work together, it's going to take some time. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be some hard conversations, but it needs to happen if we're going to do the best that we can for all students. Thank you. It was great talking with you. Thank you. Our producers for this podcast are Chris Cavera and Marco Mendoza. Special thanks to the College of Education and Human Development. Research assistance for this podcast was provided by ICS intern Megan Napolitan with editing by Stevie Shorick. This conversation was recorded in the Stanton Audio Recording Studio in the Michael and Sarah Colleen Center at Bowling Green State University.